0: listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. Hey
1: everyone, Chris Lopez here, and we are doing our second virtual happy hour. This is something that we had the idea of a few weeks ago to start, actually a couple months ago to start, obviously with COVID. We all like to network, we all like to hang out. It's been a little bit harder with COVID. Uh, So Terrence Doyle, Doyle and I had the idea a few weeks ago to sit down, bring in a different guest every time. And two things, have the excuse to have a drink or two. Have some whiskey. Um, and then also just get to talk with someone. with really no agenda, but pick their brain, go off topic, talk mark, and just have some fun. So, Terrence, who do you rope into for this month?
2: Yeah, he just flew in a couple hour ago, hours ago, fresh off the plane from Minneapolis. He's been jet-setting the last couple months. Uh... Call him a good friend. We met a couple years ago. I've been super impressed by him. Steven Pesavento. a little background. He has been in the real estate game for a little, a little while, flipped a couple hundred homes, and has been on the Bigger Pockets podcast, hosts his own podcast now, one of my favorite real estate podcasts, and I'm not just saying that because you're sitting six feet away from me. <laughs> but uh, no, genuinely, sure, you have some sure, great, sure, sure, sure. great guests, really thoughtful questions, some awesome content. And uh, yeah, Steven is here in the studio. Steve, what's on your mind today? What are you thinking? What's you, you just got back from Hawaii?
0: You just went through a cleanse and a new you're going through a new uh diet. Man, life's changing all around us, you know? It's like people's businesses are changing, people are getting divorced, they're breaking up, they're moving, they're selling their house. I I'm grateful I sold my house back in July, sold for 25,000 above ask, and frankly, I think I sold for more than I was expecting to sell for. So, you know, real estate's in an interesting place right now, but you know, I'm excited to be back in Denver. Just finished up a, a short little couple-month trip living in Hawaii. Back visiting family for a little bit back in Minnesota. But winter's coming, baby, and I got to get out of the Midwest. Got to get back here and uh, set up some roots back here home.
1: Well, yeah. before we jump into more, we've got... Let's I got cheers my to, my to the 25000 over to list. To cheers. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. So,
0: cheers
2: to the Denver real estate market being hot. That's
1: good. So I learned from a previous show I was recording <laughs> to take a sip. Pause for a second or two. Otherwise, I just cough and don't look nearly as cool. Yeah. Take so, your time. Yeah. Take your time. I want you to look
2: you cool. You
0: want to enjoy it. Around. If you're gonna be if you're gonna be drinking good quality whiskey, you wanna be you wanna enjoy it. You don't want to just take shots of this. So,
1: so not not at enjoy happy hour. Enjoy it like out of a fancy plastic cup.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Really Maybe the next round you guys are gonna want to get some some highball glasses and really step things up.
1: Yeah, the
0: the the, the more I drink, the less
1: classy I get. It's not working that way. Um anyway, so I don't know where do you want to start here, but we just had a very interesting brainstorming session before this. I don't know if you want to start there. A good there. brain dump. Yeah. I, I,
2: one of the things I'm interested because in, Steve has more of a national audience and is connecting with operators and really interesting people all around the country is, you know, what do you see? I know we see Denver, Chris and I see the Denver real estate market. What are you seeing around the country, you know, since March and April, you know, we had a pandemic, people were really worried. We have an election coming up. You know, what are the, what kinds of trends or things are you seeing out there right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, since April in particularly, it just depends on what day of the week you're talking about because everything has changed so much month to month and week to week. But, you know, overall, uh, what I've noticed is that people were in a lot of fear in April and May, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of feeling that there was going to be some huge deals in the multifamily space, some big deals in commercial space. But overall, we really haven't seen uh, big um you know, price drops as far as when we're talking about multifamily real estate or specifically, you know, any kind of investment real estate. Things continue to grow. I think that's in part because low interest rates and uh we're actually seeing, you know, fairly typical collections. Right. And it's probably because, you know, the government put in, you know, five point two trillion dollars, including all the liquidity that they've uh created in the market, which, you know, essentially props up or creates a backstop for investors and therefore the rest of the economy to feel really comfortable. But you know, a lot of the conversation, a lot of the talk is that depending on the asset class and depending on the market, that things are going to continue to be strong. Now, some markets, uh, you know, are in a bad place and will continue to be, you know, some of the places where there's a lot of hospitality, but what we're seeing in, in, uh, especially here in Denver is that there's still growth happening. And part of that growth is because people are moving from some of those big cities. Now, my own hypothesis, my hallucination or my guess is that I think cities like LA and New York are still going to be great places for people to invest, you know, uh, in the coming years. So I, I wouldn't poo poo all big cities personally. Now, some people definitely are, um, but there's definitely a lot of move for people to move from these cities to places where they have a little bit more space, so they can get outside and right. you know they can have better quality of living, uh, especially because so many more people are working remotely from home.
1: Yeah. So I don't know because it's interesting well you mentioned LA, San Francisco, New York. Uh, do you think I agree? I think they will definitely rebound. They're not falling off the face of the planet or anything. But do you think in terms of like their you know in the in the you know year point of view things have they peaked? And I'm talking about like peak Hmm. there, then when you actually kind of take it more to nominal dollars, you know, just for inflation, like, hey, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, was this past 10, 20 years, was that the peak of their, of their, you know, return for investing and just peak, you know, hey, number of people there for business reasons.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say for sure, and I'm definitely not the person to be making those those calls. But if I had to to make a guess, you know, if some of the really smart people that I'm listening to and you know, some of the people that Marcus and Millichamp's bringing out um, it, are talking about the fact that, yeah, people are moving out of the city right now, and they're moving to markets like Austin, like Denver, um, and that people are going to continue to move to those places. But that once we have a shift back to this virus being under control and we have some you know, changes to our society in general that allow people to shift back into the cities that from what I've been told that back, you know, in 9-11 time, people were talking about never working in big office, tall office buildings again, obviously that changed and that went back. So I right. I would imagine that people are still going to have a drive to live in those big cities, but we've already seen a huge push for especially the younger generation have an opportunity, millennials in particular, have an opportunity to live life where they want in places they can afford closer to the city center and frankly, uh, in markets where they can have better affordability in comparison with the type of work they're doing and the lifestyle that they live, you know, and that's why markets like Raleigh, um, and so many others are continuing to grow and probably are, uh, expected to grow in the future is because people are leaving these big cities, but I don't think that's going to mean the big cities aren't going to be around anymore. You know, I think they're still going to play a huge role because, you know, uh, people still like to work face to face like the the what we just had today we had a phenomenal working session you know brainstorming working on some really cool projects together um but the interaction that we had in person you can't really recreate remotely i've been working remotely for you know 3 probably 4 or 5 years now and uh explicitly remotely in denver for the last 3 years and i get out and i have a lot of fun and i connect with other people but it can be a little bit of uh a difficult time socially uh when you're working remotely and a lot of workers that are stuck working remotely right now are saying that and a lot of the conversations um that are coming out after people are completing some of these surveys are saying that over 70 percent of the workforce wants to be working from an office majority of the time so i think once the opportunity to work from an office is available again i think most people are going to end up going back there and therefore i would uh, that would make me argue that some of these big cities or downtown areas are going to continue to revitalize. So Chris and I both have children under the age of 3 and I'll just say
2: I can't work from home. As <laughs> soon as the op- as soon as you can go into an office and you have children, you are running to the office cuz sure. I you know, productivity, the chaos. I mean, obviously it's amazing being around your children, but if you want to get deep work done and really solve problems, uh, it's virtually impossible at home. Even, even And I have an office at the house, but it's like, you know, it doesn't even matter if the door's locked or if I put pillows everywhere and try and lock. I mean, the kids are getting in. They, oh, they're they not on the same agenda. Yeah. You they don't care the what kitchen, kind of problem a, I'm it's working a 20 on. 20-minute trip. Yeah, it's not. Oh, yeah. So I I tend to agree office may be down right now. It's down a lot in New York, probably down a lot in LA and Seattle, but it's going to be a momentary time. And they just have the infrastructure that they have built there, you know, in those cities for mm-hmm. big companies, big data. It's... It's not like it's going to move to the Midwest tomorrow. Although I will say that owning properties in the Midwest, it was interesting to see that during April, May, June, and July, the Midwest paid and collected more rent on average by like 10% Uh than the coastal cities. So that says a lot, I think, about the kind of tenants. I think the lower cost of living. So to your point, I think now that millennials can pick where they want to live and work, Uh I think they're going to the Midwest. It's a lot more. It's a lot Uh, more cost you know cost effective right you can rent you know our average rental there is $750 versus Mm -hmm. in Denver it's probably double that you know and uh, you may not have but there is no sports teams right now you know and there is no like shows I mean there's the things that the reasons why people want to live in the big cities you can't really do you can't take advantage of you know amusement parks aren't open besides the outdoors you know which is why I think Denver's been you know a popular destination but I don't know I tend to I tend to agree I think in a, a year or two people are going to be right back in LA and New York and it's going to be, you know, business as usual. Well,
0: I think see it that. opens up like an opportunity for investors who previously would have never considered investing in those markets because they were priced out or because right. they were too competitive. But I think, you know, as you see people kind of flying away from a place that actually can create an opportunity for you to fly in and figure out, Hey, how can I serve that niche? So you know, I'm not going to start investing in LA and New York myself personally. It's not my niche. It's not my focus, but I would definitely look to work with operators that are focused on that area. And I could see that being a pretty good thesis of, uh, why there's actually a, a value add opportunity because people have flocked away from it.
2: Yeah, that's well said. So I know that, so changing lanes a little bit. So you were in Hawaii for six to eight weeks. I've been seeing, I mean, Hawaii seems like the popular place. You're a real estate investor. You know, I see all these pictures and videos from all these you know, these masterminds and groups in Hawaii, looks like they're just living the life. So what was that like? Who are you down there with? And give us the takeaway of being down there. And is that a place you could see yourself spending more time?
0: Yeah, I mean, so uh, Hawaii is amazing. Uh, the, the, The Cliff Notes version is that I sold the house and I knew that there was an opportunity specifically to go and travel and stay somewhere else. And, you know, I was kind of in this rush of having a bunch of big deals, closing, uh, raising capital for those and, uh, wanting, you know, moving out of my house. So I was like, okay, well now's the perfect time. If I'm going to have to put things in storage, even for a week while moving into the next apartment, why not go somewhere cool? And so we're looking all over the country, but what was cool about Hawaii in particular is, uh, Because of the same reason why people won't travel to Hawaii or have not been traveling to Hawaii was exactly the reason why it created an opportunity for us to go there. And it's because they had a 14-day quarantine period, which means you had to stay on the property uh, or in your hotel for 14 days. And on majority of the islands, it's actually you have to stay in the hotel unless you uh, state while entering that you have an intention to potentially relocate to Hawaii. So, of course, we were intending to relocate there temporarily. Uh, We made that choice that we're going to do that. And as a result... We had actually found a place that was $100,000 a month normally. And this person normally got that every single month, uh, renting out this place on Maui. And we had it negotiated for $8,500 a month. It's a 5 bedroom mansion with a hot tub and pool right on the ocean. So it was amazing. Three days before the trip, though, the Hawaiian government changed the rules. So what did we do? We didn't cancel the trip. We just essentially had to change what we were doing. So they changed the rules into Maui and that ended up creating an opportunity for us to actually go to Big Island. So we ended up renting a 5 bedroom estate, 10 acres on the, the on the Big Island and it was amazing. It was like the perfect little getaway, working case, you know, working vacation. Um but I think the big takeaway for everyone who's listening is like when there's an when everyone's saying I'm not going to go there for this reason or I'm not going to invest in this city or I'm not going to do that because of x ask yourself well hey how can that actually be my opportunity because as a result we we're able to go and stay in this mansion that was the former beach boys estate for you know a fraction of the cost um and you know staying on a 10 acre estate for 14 days with a pool and a tennis court and fruit trees galore and amazing views like i would trade that for my little house in denver any day for for a couple of weeks but as far as moving to hawaii definitely not going to move there permanently you know maybe on maui or something like that but the pace of things are just too slow for where i'm at in my life and career so
2: it was yeah. normally a hundred thousand a month you guys got it for eighty 8, five hundred.
0: Eighty wow. five hundred and it was normally a hundred thousand dollars wow
2: just because no one was going to to Hawaii during because April, May, nobody June? could
0: nobody could literally get into Hawaii and in in Maui in particular the only way for us to get that property which was the original property not the one we stayed and the only way we could get it was if we signed a lease saying we were going to stay for six months uh-huh. uh, but then the owner also was going to write us a lease that would allow us to leave early uh-huh. so okay. we could cancel at our discretion so what that ended up creating was we were willing to play ball. And we were willing to stay, but unfortunately they changed the rules three days before and uh, they canceled on us because of that. And so we ended up having to find another place and that place was amazing. But, you know, a 14 day quarantine, you know, I had tons of friends all working remotely and I kept, you know, trying to get other people to get out there with us. I had a couple really close friends, entrepreneurs who worked remotely and tons of people were like, Oh, I don't want to be there for 14 days. That's too you know, I don't want to be at the property. Everyone's making excuses. But then when they look back and they see like, holy smokes, you went and lived in a place cheaper than you'd pay rent in your home city to live in, you know, essentially a mansion. Uh, I don't know. I would definitely do it again, but I'm excited to be back in Denver and, uh, looking forward. Hopefully the skis, uh, ski hill stay open.
2: Yeah. It sounds like it's snow is coming. That's amazing. That sounds incredible. And I'm jealous. I wish I could take a 14 day quarantine trip to Maui you could uh, do I, the yeah. uh,
1: virtual happy hour over there instead. Yeah, I
2: wish there was like a, the ocean, like right behind that screen. That would, that'd be, uh, that'd be quite the backdrop.
1: Oh, uh, I would take the mountains and any over the oceans. <laughs> we uh. can debate
2: that on another podcast. <laughs>
1: um, I do want to ask you this question. Um, just talking, what we were talking earlier about just going across, you know, the big cities out there. I know one of your passions and, you know, your podcast was all about the mindset and you know, the mindset for success. Have you seen, it's gonna be like a loaded question, I'm not sure the best way to ask, but have you seen any shifts in mindset or have you seen certain traits of mindsets do particularly well during the COVID pandemic?
0: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the mindset, having a growth mindset, which everyone hears about growth mindset, oh, you wanna have a growth mindset over a fixed mindset. Well, what does that mean? Well, growth mindset means that you're focused on, having the ability to improve your traits or qualities a fixed mindset means you are the way you are and you can improve you're either good or bad someone's either good or bad they're either the right fit or they're not the right fit right and so when you have that fixed mindset there's nowhere that you can go you're either a success or you're a failure but when you have the growth mindset you're able to look at things from a perspective of i'm going to continue growing and so you know after uh interviewing hundreds of people on the investor mindset talking to some of the most successful people from you know, uh, you know, Chris Voss to Brandon Turner to the author of The One Thing um, and everyone in between, what I've noticed is that consistently those people are thinking from a perspective of how can I continually grow. The other thing that they're doing is they're continually looking at how are other successful people thinking and they're taking those ways of thinking, those beliefs or those strategies and they're applying them directly within their own life and their own business. And what results from that is they start to see some of those same results that those successful people saw in their business and so the more people you talk to that are winning per se you know in in society's mind they tend to think along some of those same same lines even if they don't realize that they're doing it even if they're not conscious to it or they're not on the old uh i'm improving uh, personal improvement uh path a lot of those people are taking that uh, that way of thinking and and that's what they're they're actually manifesting in the world
2: that's a great question So when you and I met a couple years ago, we had a really good talk about multifamily and we were talking about applying some of your strategies from single family that you were doing virtually to multifamily and we were brainstorming. And then you ended up starting a podcast, uh, for those of you that don't know, called the Investor Mindset Podcast. So walk me through what that transition looked like from flipping properties to starting a podcast and maybe one of the big takeaways That you've had from starting it and having a ton of success. I mean, I think early on within your first three or four months, it was one of the top ranked real estate investing podcasts. Uh, You've had a bunch of downloads, that hundreds of thousands, and you've been ranked in the top, you know, one of the top real estate podcasts, I think, consistently. So walk me through that transition of wanting to get into multifamily, trying to figure out the best way in. You launched the podcast. There's you were talking today, over seven hundred thousand podcasts, and you decide to start one. I mean, to me, that was pretty impressive and something that probably would have intimidated me, but It didn't intimidate you, and you've gone on to have a ton of success. You know, walk me through that.
0: Yeah. So I think for me, what it was was I, you know, just like everyone who's listening, you're, you're listening to podcasts and maybe you've had that thought to yourself like, Hey, I would love to be able to do that. I'd love to be able to be on the other side, interviewing, connecting, asking questions to all these people that I look up to. And I had wanted to do it, but I had that limiting belief. I had this belief that kept telling me, Oh, I don't have enough skill. I don't have enough background. I don't have enough credibility. I can't do that. And if, you know, the only regret that I have is that I didn't start earlier. And that's a, wow. that's in from real estate. That's from the podcast perspective. That's usually a consistent theme that people say, um, when they look back and, and, and recommend doing something. But what podcasting did for me was it gave me an ability, not only to do something that I'm really good at communicating and interacting and asking questions. Cause I have a genuine curiosity, but to, to be able to publicly speak and build credibility Um, out in this community, both from a passive investor perspective, bringing people in who have the opportunity to invest with me and Von Finch Capital and the type of deals that we do and the type of deals we put together, but also from the active investor, people who want to follow in the same footsteps. And so what it was for me was just like so many other things. I had made the decision that I was going to do it. I got to the point where I was at threshold. I decided I was going to do a podcast. I committed to doing it. And then I went and found other people who were succeeding at it. And funny thing, after I talked to some of those people, I realized that they're just normal people like you and me. Now, some of them are succeeding at a crazy high level and some of them are doing some really incredible things. But by talking to them, I realized like, oh wow, if they can do it, I can do it. And it's a common theme you'll hear if you listen to the podcast or if you heard me speak before, because I've had that moment a few times. It's usually the moment that people end up taking action and doing, you know, doing the things they want to go after. And so for me, I was flipping houses and I, you know, just a little track record background. We'd flipped You know over 200 houses flipped or wholesaled in about a two and a half year period in two different states while i lived in california and denver was investing in north carolina and minneapolis and uh you know about half of those were full-blown flips or new builds or you know some kind of development and what i learned through that process was i took action and we were really really good at getting deals and we were really good i was really good at raising capital um, but what I didn't love as much was the operation side. I had great partner was focused on operation, but when he ended up having a big exit on a big development opportunity and said, Hey, I don't want to flip houses anymore. I, I just made a ton of money and I'm going to sit back and, uh, you know, kind of collect the easy money. I said, well, great. Well, what direction do I want to go? And I started looking around and realized the big opportunity that's available, uh, in commercial real estate. And it's, you know, for a couple of reasons, the way it's valued, You know, based on income versus based on other comparables in the market, Um, but also from a scalability standpoint, because I'd already started buying single family properties at scale when you're, you know, buying, you know, 75 houses a year, you end up having a pretty good ability to buy houses. But, you know, we weren't able to get the kind of numbers. And so What I realized was that because I was loving the podcast, the podcast was filling me up, and I also saw this other ability to be able to communicate big ideas um, very succinctly, and I was great at uh, marketing, and I had great connections, um, and the ability to do due diligence, I was able to bring those things together to add significant value to my investors. So the people who already had trusted me before, now I was able to go out and essentially build a business around those skill sets and most importantly, focus on my ideal customer. And here's something that people often forget about in business, and we were talking about this today when we were talking about some of these cool projects that we've got won't talk about it here. We'll we'll have to, you know, you guys have to keep listening to more episodes as, as more of that will come out. But when we start thinking about who's the ideal customer, who's the that ideal person that you want to serve every single day, I realized in my single family business that at the time I, my current customer was people who were going through significant challenge in their life. They were not growth minded. They were looking for a one-time sale and it was not repeatable. And I was buying their house at 60 to 70 cents on the dollar. Great service, great value to them, great value to my investors, but it wasn't the kind of business I wanted to build. And by getting really clear and by this process of taking action, starting the podcast and then going out and doing these other things, I was able to realize like, how can I actually build a business around serving growth minded people? People who are already successful and want to be more successful. And that's what lights me up. And so that's what the podcast did. It helped me clarify that and then create a specific area, a specific niche for me to be able to excel at. Um, and that, that's like the coolest thing is when you interview all these people, you realize like, oh, uh, I actually really like doing this. I want to do more of it. That's a phenomenal answer. I'm still trying to digest. It. That was a lot of, a lot of good. I was stuff throwing there. a lot, I was yeah, throwing I was, a lot I was, at really you. We've really, a couple I, different I uh, I stages. one I mean, of
1: yeah. our notes we learned is we gotta pause a few seconds after the question so us someone can digest it. So it's, Let's it's let, good let everyone thing. digest that. Um I got a question if you're still digesting. Yeah. Shoot. So yes to the you're, question? You're, All right. Um, <laughs> this is you, I mean something we talked about here, you scaled your business remotely. How have you done that? Because I always think it's 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 always good to scale, uh, but also now since everyone's virtual or mostly virtual, scaling is a very different thing. And it's interesting how interesting, you said the last, you know number of years you've been working remotely. Um, in my whole, my graduate college up to, the, I don't know, about six years ago, I was pretty much 100% remote. Yeah, And I was doing that back like 2002 to 2010. So before, you know, everyone had Zoom calls and all that. We were still using like mm-hmm. Vonage, if you guys even know what that is. <laughs> um, it was like seriously Old Vonage school. and AOL and the Messenger for a right. few years. Um, and I, I liked it to a bit, learned a lot. But two things I learned was that like the, the things I learned from scaling remotely just helped me scale locally, I think, so much better. Because, uh-huh. you know, remotely you have to have such key systems in place. For sure. And if you can do that well remotely a lot of times you can be lazy on the systems, because we're sitting across a conference table from each other. So I found that very beneficial. But I'm curious, as you did, I'm like, what are your key takeaways? Because you've built, you know, your couple businesses, you're transitioning, you're growing, like, what have you learned and what tips can you give people out there for just continuing to scale, or get better at scaling during this uh, time of opportunity and time of working remotely?
0: Yeah, so I think the biggest tips on scaling I can share from the failures, right? When you scale Mm -hmm. to do 200 deals, you scale 75 deals in your first year, and you're going direct to seller, and you're spending a lot of money on marketing, you're spending a lot of money on team, it's really, really important that you're running a well-oiled machine. And at the beginning of that process, we were not. We were, we were spending money, we were hiring people, we were learning as we go, and frankly, that's sometimes what you have to do. But that's one of the reasons why it's so important for me now to be investing specifically by curating deals with experienced operators who already learned all those mistakes well before I put money in their deals. Because within about a, a year and a half, two-year period, I'd spent about a million dollars on marketing, wow. right? A million dollars on direct-to-seller marketing in, two two, in under two years, and as a result of that, we had some phenomenal uh, return on investment in some channels, and we had some horrific return on investment <laughs> in other channels. And here's the big kicker. It's about 50000 a month for two years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was more than that in some months because we scaled wow. up, but wow, uh, huge. Uh, and as a result of that, what we learned, uh, what I learned was just how important it is to be tracking those numbers every single day. And if you're not good at it, then you better make sure that you've got someone on your team who's yeah. really, really good at parsing through that data and is making some of those decisions on their own to cut marketing spend in certain areas. Like here's a perfect example. per click for a long time was producing, you know, for $3,000 spent, we'd make 15 to 20 grand. So it was a pretty great ROI. But there was about a six to seven month uh, period where it started to slowly go down and we were not watching that ROI calculation as closely. And so what happened is we were still spending 20, 25 grand a month on pay-per-click and we weren't getting the ROI. And so by the end of that period, by the end of, uh, um, you know, when we finally shut it off, when we had done the ROI calculation, which we really, I have learned should be done weekly, if not more often um, and definitely monthly, because the more times that you have measurement opportunities, the more times you have an opportunity to change, we had essentially lost all of our profit from that channel. That wow. channel ended up being a net neutral after being one of our best channels. And so that is true across pretty much every channel that you can have out there from cold calling to direct mail to uh pay-per-click that and if you're- Google PPC? Google PPC. Okay. And we're doing a little bit of Facebook If Facebook wasn't consistent. It was inconsistent at the time. People have definitely cracked the nut on that and people are still throwing money into the garbage in all of those channels. but. Um, if you're not tracking specifically what's working, where, and if you're doing direct mail, what's working in what zip code in what, uh, type of uh, homeowner, you know, getting really granular when you're doing 150,000 mailers a month or hundred thousand mailers a month, like you can really throw away money really quickly. So what was the takeaway from that? Well, the takeaway was, um, you know, scaling for the sake of scale is not actually valuable. The, the other big takeaway is that, you know, uh, we were quite profitable overall, but we could have been much, much more profitable had we been running tighter operations. And so that's the biggest thing on, on scale is I actually think you want to scale up enough so you have enough data to work with, but you need to make sure that you or your team as a whole has the skill set to be able to not only put processes into place, but to keep them in place running well. And the only way you can do that is by having metrics and KPIs to be able to me- measure and manage.
1: Can, can I peel back this onion some Please. more? This is really, I, I really like to talk marketing and also just the scaling of things. So would you define, I agree with you, you have to have track it and people are either good at it or they're not good. There's usually not much middle ground, I feel like. Yeah. Are you really good at it? Or do you hire someone to track it and put the reports in place together for you?
0: So... I am really, really good at vision and getting people to be on top of my vision and to see the vision and really good at building relationships and, uh, you know, coaching and managing, uh, people from a, from a person, person to person standpoint. Uh, I'm great at sales, but I am not good at numbers. You know, I can do underwriting and I underwrite all my own deals and I, I dev into those, but I always have somebody on my team who's able to do that underwriting or in this case, who's able to do um, you know, essentially the analytics to be able to mm-hmm. understand what works. And so we brought in a third-party analyst who essentially came in and started parsing through those numbers. And that's how we started understanding where things actually were. We made some big changes and those changes were really, really beneficial. But we, we made them, you know, t- I would have liked to have made them much earlier. And that's the biggest takeaway I want people to have.
1: And so you're, so I mean, like looking at Reports Weekly, uh, yep. I mean... That you know that you have to have, be on top of your data collection. So we're you using a specific software. Are you all like Google spreadsheets or Excel spreadsheets? Because the hard I've always had the difficulty with all these channels is how do you combine the data into one platform that's also very useful.
0: I think that's the hard part about especially when you're a single family operator and you're going direct to seller marketing is that there's not really a CRM that allows you to track this information in a very very effective way consistently now at the time we we're using podio and podio is pretty popular you know where you can layer different kind of tools on top of it but frankly I think it sucks as far as being able to uh, manage uh yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, how he really I, feels. I can say it very clearly and, and and openly that it sucks for being able to manage uh, team members and be able to manage metrics because you're not able to get a deep view without manually pulling this information. So the result of how we ended up managing it was that we had to manually pull the info. So it made it difficult to be able to do weekly reporting because it was such a cumbersome process. Yeah. So for those big organizations, when you're just a small operator, um, you it makes it not it makes it cost prohibitive to manage it weekly. But you've got to put it pieces in place from the very beginning to be able to manage well, what is working and what's not.
1: And now with you, with your current business, have you fully transitioned out to single family flipping?
0: Yeah, we don't we don't do okay. any flips. We haven't done flips. We haven't done a flip. We sold our last one earlier this year. Uh, we still do a wholesale property here and there because we still have some stuff coming in, but we've fully transitioned over
1: okay. So now, if you're a new business, what? How often are reviewing the analytics and all that? Is that are you on that weekly now, or what's your?
0: What yeah, you so we're we still need to be definitely doing it more often because <laughs> I learned from that mistake. But the the deal is right now we're doing monthly uh, reviews on those uh, on the numbers. But what's interesting about our business as we're growing into this space is that the the channels that we're working from are not as cost. They, you're not we're not spending 50, a month. 50, 60 grand a month on marketing. Most of it's earned marketing. So I'm able to tell, well, what's working and and where is it working? What's define earned marketing? Earned marketing is where you're putting out a podcast or you're putting out social media or you're working uh, a network or, you're, or your network specifically versus I would call paid marketing. Like I'm going to do pay-per-click ads mm-hmm. or I'm going to do Facebook ads or I'm going to do direct mail or or different things like that. So how do you track the metrics on the podcast? I mean,
1: because those are, yeah. from everything I've done, podcasting metrics are about the worst in the world by like tenfold compared to Google, Facebook, YouTube, yeah. anything else out there is about the worst thing in the world. How are you tracking, especially since you're so relationship focused, Yeah, you can't say, hey, one podcast leads to one motivated yep. seller lead.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I don't have a good. We we haven't cracked that nut specifically, but we're we're definitely getting closer to it. Okay. But the way that we do that now is that we track the overall downloads and listen rate on 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 a episode or on a podcast, and then we look at what the calls to action are that are happening within that podcast or that you know the different calls to action that we have and a call to action. For those non-marketing people is where I say, hey, if you want this thing for free or you want this thing that's paid, go do this action or go do this thing. So an example of that is we have this 52-page passive investing guide. It's you know super detailed, super in-depth in-depth. And for the people who are interested in passive investing and are looking at investing in syndications, and they're looking at figuring out how they can grow their wealth, whether they're working a W-2 or they're making a ton of money in their business, they'll go to the slash passive. They'll put their information in and then I'll be able to tell, okay, well, I can see that a lead came in from that source. Now, the thing that we're missing is we're not being able to tell exactly where W- whether that lead came from this episode or that episode okay, next question, or whether yeah. or not it came from, um, you know, me mentioning it on this podcast, which I highly encourage you to go check that out. The investor mindset.com slash passive. If you're interested in passive investing, great seven day email series that we do kind of teaching and training on some of that stuff. Um, so we're not able to track that, but one way that you can track that we've considered, but it's one of those things where it takes more work than it's worth for the level that we're at. Um, is that you can use different links in different places. You can put bitly links, and you can track through yeah. what the click-through rate is on these different things. Now, for me, what's most important, if I was going to call metrics that matter to me, you know, overall listens or reach, you know across different platforms, from Facebook to YouTube, to the podcast, to LinkedIn, overall reach across all those, and then breaking that down and how many people subscribe to the investor mindset. Uh, newsletter list? How many people opt in specifically for passive investing? How many people opt in specifically for real estate entrepreneurship coaching or multifamily entrepreneurship coaching with a a partnership that that we have? So I'd be looking as we work down the funnel and a funnel is just a way of looking at how people come from having no idea who you are down to taking a specific action within your business each of those gets smaller and smaller. And if we're able to track as we go down that path, we're able to see, okay, you know, I'm getting these many listens and that's turning into these leads. Now I would love to get more specific, but unfortunately, uh, it, the juice isn't worth the squeeze until we step up our game to being on a much higher level. And like I said, you know, being a top 200 investing podcast, um, you, it's still not at the level where it makes sense to get that granular. At least it hasn't for us yet.
1: And that, I think that's an important point is there's the, there's always better and then there's also the good enough. Because extra track and it's like, cool, I can spend extra 20 hour and 20 man hours a week doing this to what optimize an extra 50 bucks a month, hundred dollars a month or a thousand dollars a month, not worth it. For sure. So we've got about 10 minutes left on here before we have to wrap up. Um, I could talk marketing until everyone else went to sleep with you, Steven. So, Terrence, you, you probably got some more real estate questions. I've digested
2: over here. his previous Did, answer. I, I, to yeah,
1: you
0: back <laughs> I'm back in the game. I'm back in the
2: game. We'll now. have to come back
0: to marketing. Yeah, we'll always, have a special episode, me and I Chris, would just say, on like, marketing. I feel
2: like I'm getting a master's in education here on marketing. You're just seeing two marketing gurus go back and forth. So, it's fascinating stuff. I hope that people that are into marketing can go back and watch this because you guys are both two of the best. This is why. I wanted to work with both of you. But, but, you guys are but, two of the best at what you
0: do. But I want to point something out to the listeners too. So the conversation that we just had, if things were going over your head, phenomenal. If you understood some of what we were talking about, really, really great. If you understood none of it, you know, you're know, you going to want to start at you know the beginning and listen to it again. But the process of listening to how we're thinking about doing what we're doing, the, the process of listening to what I've said about how I've learned from this and how I'm applying it and how you can go essentially do that yourself, by taking the way that we're thinking about this and applying in your business, so I want to make sure that everyone who's listening that is a real estate operator or a passive investor, or whatever you guys do, that you are at least listening with the intent to not only learn and be entertained, but how can you apply this directly? Yeah, no, hundred percent.
1: Actually, can I? I want one follow-up question on here just because, like, you know, you've grown your business very differently. A lot of it just through, you know, you're you're an amazing networker, Terrence. Do, what type of metrics do you track, Often do you track? And, and, and you're going through like a crazy right. growth mode now. Like mm-hmm. I know the people you're hiring and the way yeah. your business is scaling, like what's your tracking like, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, sure. I'm much
2: more of a real estate, I would say with all due respect, and you guys have done great things in real estate, I'm much more like in the weeds on like looking at property. I probably walk a property every day or every other day. So I'm looking at real estate, I'm on job sites, I'm meeting with brokers, me with bankers. I mean, I'm definitely in the real estate weeds where you guys do a lot of real estate deals and transactions as a periphery to doing excellent at your core thing, which is marketing. You guys know how to get attention in different ways. And so that's what I love about what you guys each do. I think the thing for me is I know that I get a great return on my time when I spend time with really talented people, you know, whether that be people that have done really well in their own business and they're looking to get into real estate or brokers that are really good at knowing who. Is motivated in Denver or Des Moines uh, or a GC or contractors that are looking for more consistent work, or they want someone that's going to pay them, you know, more consistently, or things like that. So that's what I track. Is you know, I know that I've kind of over time through being in different businesses that when I spend time, quality time with someone, that I'm going to get a disproportionate return. Uh, And you know, if I'm comparing Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter and YouTube, I couldn't tell you. Other than they all work, and I think it's just a big snowball that we've been able to get momentum on yeah. and that we've created, you know, a lot of opportunity over the last couple of years. And since I met you, you know, my big thing, I reached out to you was, Hey, I really want to get better at marketing and I couldn't tell you which social media network has had a better ROI, but I can just tell you that it's all worked. And, you know, I just focused on building relationships and it's, it's been, I think a positive that return. I'm not spending 50,000 a month. That's a much different. If I was doing that, then I'd be much more in the weeds on what the return is on different social media platforms. But
0: because you're yeah. a great operator and you automatically would be focused on how do I make sure I squeeze as much out of that? Right. Like for me, I am, uh, there's a reason that I'm focused. My whole business is built around working with phenomenal operators right. because I know that I'm really, really good at the things that I'm good at. And I want to focus on being the best at those, yeah. uh, those areas. So I think that's like a huge, huge takeaway because networking is is absolutely incredibly important and the bigger and less about the bigger your network, the stronger your network, those deep connections. That's one of the reasons that you've been so successful here in Denver.
2: Yeah. So one of the questions I have, speaking of operators, is you've been able to interview some super successful people. You don't need to name names, but I'm wondering, coming from another operator's perspective, like what are the one or two things you think that the successful people you've interviewed specifically in real estate have in common that you would share
0: with the audience? It's mm, a good one. Yeah. So what do the what do those operators have in common? So when I talk to like Joe Fairless and, you know, Reed Goosens and Andrew Campbell and Rod Khalif and you know Mark Kenny and all these people who are really, really good at what their part of the multifamily or the real estate th- piece is, is that they've figured out where they're the best at. They figured out what, what their skill set is. They understand that it's all about building a process. Um, at the end of the day that if you're going to scale anything, you've got to build out that process. You've got to have really tight operations and that that starts all the way from going out and finding deals from understanding how do you build that deal pipeline. And you know, in commercial multifamily, uh, in the, you know, the, the big leagues, it's all about relationships. Um, in when you're talking big commercial multifamily, one of the things that was interesting to me coming from single family buying only one property in my whole life from a realtor was uh my personal residence, which is the one I just talked about selling two years ago. And I told that broker who's a who's a good friend of mine, I told him when he when he said he was gonna look for deals, you're not gonna find a deal for me. It's the numbers are not gonna work. I don't believe it because I bought every deal directly from sellers. Um, he ended up finding one, obviously, and it, it paid quite well when I did sell it <laughs> two years later. But um, what what's interesting about it is that in the commercial space, uh, it's all about building credibility with brokers, building credibility that you're going to be the person who's going to be able to close on time, that you're going to do what you say, that you can raise the capital if you're a syndicator, that you've got the capital if you're a direct owner. Um, and so that credibility piece plays in huge on the broker side when you're talking about that deal pipeline. But the credibility is then extended to the investor side when you're talking about, you know, putting the capital stack together. It's hugely important when you're talking to uh, the bank, and they're gonna wanna, you know, back you. Whether you're talking Fannie Mae or you know some other type of financing, but it's incredibly important with investors because investors invest with me because they know, like, and trust me because they believe that I'm gonna go out and find great operators and I'm going to do most of the the heavy lifting for them to finally do that screening themselves. It's the same reason that they invest with you as well. And so being able to figure out how can they build a really tight operation from process perspective, but then also build credibility at scale with lots of people and build true relationships with the right people, I think is is something that I've noticed, Uh, but happy to dive deeper. No, I thought that was a
2: I mean that answered my question. It sounds like you said they know what their and we were talking about this earlier. What you know they know what their superpower is. Superpower being what do they get a disproportionate return on their time? What's the what's the thing that they do that's worth ten thousand dollars an hour? And then they know how to build systems around that, right? And I and then they have credibility in the market. You For know, sure, what I heard you say that you know most of the you know operators that are successful, that are ultra successful, that are really well known, that have a great brand around being operators. That's what they've done and. And I think that I'm always interested, you know, coming from a sports background, you're always trying to glean, you know, from people senior and more experienced, hey, what do they do that I can take away, that I can apply to my business? So I'm always interested to to hear. Uh, do
1: you want to talk about superpowers? Sure. Should we talk about superpowers? We had a great... I, I got to ask a question here from the audience for you. Oh, yeah, it's, go it's, ahead. This is yeah. one of the big things is, you know, we're we're trying to... We're trying to get this more live so people can join us. So James Brown said, "Good convo, guys. Thank you, James. Thanks, Thanks James. What's up, James? Um, This is a question from Matthew A. He emailed us in about a week ago, and I I don't know if you guys know the specifics of this answer, but also I think from the standpoint of like how do you take this and tackle it, how would you go about approaching it? Since both you guys have built some businesses here, so Matthew A. says I would like some guidance on how and where to get purchase contracts for wholesale." Subject to and or seller financing deals. Also need help understanding how to use these different deal structures to make sure everything is done correctly. So I think both of you guys have a lot of experience in this. Or at least I, mean, I know you do. you from your stuff. I know you've bought a ton of stuff too, Terrence. So like more so like how would you go about attacking this problem? Because Yeah, is here's what I would do.
2: Five minutes I've done there. this myself. Yeah. This comes up maybe once a month for me. I'm like, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to ask people who know how. So what I would do is reach out to someone that he knows is an established wholesaler and just be upfront and say, Hey, I think I have a deal. Can you help me with the contract? Show me how it's supposed to look. And specifically when it's seller financing and an experienced wholesaler should have that. And they may not even want anything. They may just do it for the fulfillment of knowing they passed it for, they paid it forward and help someone else. And if they wanted something, I'm guessing it'd be really nominal, but you may gain a lot from just having them walk through it with you the first time since you are a beginner. So I might even say, This is something I've done back in the single family days of saying, hey, what if we split this 50-50 or 75-25 or whatever's appropriate, but why don't you show me how you would do this deal? I got the buyer. I have all these things. It's great terms, a great deal. Can you walk uh, through this with me? If you don't know a wholesaler, then I would go to BiggerPockets, say I'm looking for an experienced wholesaler in this market, or I'd go to Facebook and post it, Mm. and you'll probably get some phenomenal responses, and then you just have to pick the right one.
1: And what happens if you don't get a response? Do if it you again. post
2: that on bigger pockets, you'll definitely get a response. If you go in the in the in the uh, forum marketplace and just say, Hey, I have a deal off market looking for a, looking to partner with a, an existing wholesaler, and that's the way I would do it. I'm interested to hear
0: for how sure Steve would do For it. sure, because because the underlying what you're talking about there is you're talking about, hey, how can I add value to this other wholesaler's world? Um, or, you know, other real estate investors. So I mean, think about like who if you're gonna buy the property and you're gonna sell it then you're going to think who's going to who is going to be the end buyer. Now if you don't know anything, you're probably going to end up being in a position where they're going to make more money by buying that from you than they would if you were to sell it on the open market. But that's fine because you're essentially trying to learn by uh you know by doing and doing it for free. Um if if you were looking for specific advice about, you know, the step-by-step process, how to do that, then uh you know, I couldn't see a better way other than getting a coach because the difference between getting a coach or a mentor is you can go and get free advice and it's definitely the way that I built my career. But one of the things that's really nice about having direct mentorship, somebody, if this is the business that you're going to build and this is what you're focused on, then it might make sense for you to invest in somebody who's already done it. Mm. Um, at, from a mentorship perspective, that's the difference. A mentor, somebody who's already done it and is doing it. A coach is somebody who understands how to do it and most importantly understands how that you, they can get you to take the action to do the thing that you want to do. Coaches don't necessarily have to be the best. You think the difference between, you know, LeBron James and his coach, it's a big difference. Um, They couldn't switch roles. It wouldn't be very good for them to switch roles, but they're very, very good at what they do. Um, But when you're in that position, uh, you can... You, you focus on, hey, how can I get really clear? Because you know essentially what you're going to do with that seller in this situation is you're going to ask them questions about what do they really want, what's valuable to them, and you're going to put it in terms that is going to be valuable to them on the backside. If you're going to try to get a seller finance deal together, someone's not going to do a seller finance deal just because you come in and say, hey, I actually want to buy the property and I want to buy it seller finance. They don't even know what that is, but if you put it into terms that's beneficial for them, hey, I want to buy the property and I actually want to pay more than... Than I normally would pay for the property. I'd actually like to be able to write you a check for about twenty thousand dollars more. But you know, instead of paying the you know the normal one fifty that I could pay, I can pay one seventy. But you know, actually, as a bonus of it, you're not going to have to pay taxes on it right away, all at once. And, uh, it's called a deferred sale. So, you know, as a result of that, I'm, you're going to get payments every single month, just the same as if you were renting it, but you don't have to deal with any of the the headache or if the market shifts, you know, you're in a good position because I'm the one who's responsible for doing everything. And I'm the one who's going to be paying you. So, you know, it's a really simple process. I can actually pay you more, but if you want to go the other route, I can definitely, you know, write you a check today or. Tomorrow for you know one hundred fifty thousand, and as a result of that, the people have the option to go that route, and you open up the their mind because they are thinking about it from the perspective of what's benefit, what's beneficial to them.
2: That was phrased super well. I was about. To I say, hope hey, that whoever is listening that wants to get into wholesaling rewinds that because that was phrased. I like. I want to sell my house for 170
1: to Steve yeah. right now, and I'll do a seller financing. I'll uh, take the deal. Yeah. But I and to, I, I think that's so good because so many people they forget about like they don't they don't practice before they go play. Right. Whether you, mm. you know, where I, I know we've all played sports here, you know, you don't go up to you don't bring your A game with zero practice. You know, you're not going to practice at level zero and play better at best. I think you can play as best as you practice. And obviously you have practiced that, which means you probably wrote mm-hmm. out a script. You probably record yourself with your iPhone and watch yourself and listen to yourself. Like that's what I've done over the years too. Like you, they came across so naturally, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing you have said that before two months ago, right? I've Maybe said, like a couple
0: I, thousand times. I haven't said it for probably, you know, 10 months. Maybe, like maybe even longer, so good. but the deal is because I practiced it so many times because I wrote the script out, I practiced the script in front of the mirror. And it's what I tell all my clients. I have a few clients that I work with on the same stuff because of what I've been able to scale, kind of pointing them in the right direction. But, you know, uh, for example, I was talking to one of my clients and he was like, yeah, I'm having this challenge right now where I'm, I'm getting really caught up when I'm talking to sellers in person. I'm not confident. I feel like I need to be able to address some of the problems that they're dealing with you know, better, and they're coming up with these objections, and I don't know how to handle it. It's like, well, what was the objective, the objection? Okay, well, what can you do? What can you write down specifically that would be a response to that objection that you feel comfortable saying? And if every single time you're having that interaction, you are able to go and and go back to that practice response, it starts to come out really, really smoothly. And so the way that you really want it to be, if you're gonna be, a, you know, a wholesaler or real estate, developer, investor, anyone who's doing sales or interacting in that way, you want to be able to speak smoothly as if you've said it a million times because it's going to come out confident. And so you don't want to be going in there trying to shoot from the hip the first time you ever shot a three throw. You don't want to be in the big game. You want it to be you know, in practice for months and months and months before you actually get out there. And that doesn't mean you're not playing in real games and practicing this stuff in the field, but you've got to put in the time. You can't just expect to show up. And that goes back to, I think we were talking about the growth mindset earlier, is that if you have the mindset of I can get better and therefore I'm going to practice every day and I'm going to get better, you're you're going to have a better chance of succeeding than I'm not good today and therefore I'm a failure and I'm not going to be good at this. You can't you can't move past a fixed mindset when it comes to these kind of things. You have to be going at it from this perspective of I can be better and therefore I will.
2: That was great. I, I don't would, think we need to follow that up with anything. I think that was phenomenal and that's a great way to uh, wrap up our second happy hour. Yeah, that was incredible.
1: But you know, but one thing uh, you know, again, I, I Chris I isn't like done the happy yet. He hour. wants to keep going. No, <laughs> he wants to keep drinking. <laughs> well, yes to that. Yeah, um, keep no. it going. <laughs> but I like this because I always like. I always like to learn from others, like ask questions and I'm like, you know, something like I know, then you're like, Oh, I always do call to actions. Like, you know, damn it. Yeah. You're always supposed to do that. So Terrence, we got to get a call to action off our virtual happy hour show.
0: Well, so here's a call to action for everyone who's listening. If you liked what we talked about here, we talk about this stuff twice a week on the investor mindset, (laughs) which you can find on every podcasting app, or you can go to the investor mindset.com and we've got a great, uh, Free training series, where you can sign up right on the website. That's the investormindset.com uh, or the investormindset.com slash listen if you just want to listen to it on whatever your favorite podcasting app is. So, what's yours?
1: Uh, mine is a totally different direction, and less than that, I'm kind of curious what uh, what drinks we should drink in the next episode. That was my call to action. Yours is a much better for business. Mine's <laughs> <laughs> a
2: more fun here. So, Steve's on a health
1: kick, so he's there. Uh, so, uh,
2: yeah, we can bring a different drink. I'm with you on that. No problem. That's easy. Uh, The call to action for me, I actually have a couple tough conversations coming up with, uh, some people at the end of the month that are, uh, you know, I'm actually flying to Des Moines on Thursday, have to have some tough conversations there. So I'm going to write out what I think an appropriate response is and practice that having those
1: difficult conversations. Yeah.
2: So I think that that's really good feedback and something I've never done, but I like that. So I'm going to pick that up.
1: So my real call to action, uh, besides if you guys that good good whiskeys you like, let me and Terrence know, but the real call to action is this is our second happy hour we've been doing. We want to gain some good traction or hopefully uh, you know, live on social. Terrence's Instagram, my Facebook page. So if you guys can join us for future episodes live, even if, you're, even if you're on here for a few minutes. If you got questions, email us in beforehand. We do actually want to build into some type of know some type of virtual happy hour some continuity since a lot of meetups um and get togethers are just frozen right now and i think they will be like that for many many months to come unfortunately so we do want to build some virtual traction here so please give us comments give us feedback jordan's live and send us some questions anyways terrence thank you steven thank you it's always great to catch up with you thanks guys. guys it was super fun that was great